Welcome to the Murder Book, a true crime podcast, where each week we will present notorious crimes, controversial cases, unsolved cases, missing persons, and serial killers, details of the crime scenes, childhood of the murderer, and the life of the victims will be explored. Each episode is translated into Spanish. We have a new episode every Monday, and you can listen to it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and other platforms you use to listen to your podcasts. Let's begin. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution for children under 13. Welcome to The Murder Book. I'm your host, Kiara. On December 26, 1996, the brutally beaten body of six-year-old John Bennett Ramsey was found by her father in a rarely used storage room in the basement of the Ramsey home in Boulder, Colorado. The little girl had been strangled and her skull fractured either late on Christmas Day or sometimes the morning after. Evidence showed that she had struggled helplessly with her tiny fingers to free the rope that was pulled tight around her neck. The case was initially classified as a kidnapping because of a ransom note that had been left in the home. The murder of the child beauty pageant queen became worldwide news and in the midst of their excruciating grief, John and Patsy Ramsey, parents of John Benet, became the prime suspects. 25 years later, memories have evolved and fewer details are remembered. But one strong and inviolate premise remains. Every discovery that members of law enforcement, the media, and the public have made through the years about a possible killer in this case has only strengthened their beliefs in their own theories. The John Benick Ramsey case is still one of the country's most famous unsolved mysteries. In 2012, the Boulder police chief declared a cold case. The bits and, bits and pieces of information related to this case, some factual and some not, that have been disseminated by so many with no proof should no longer stand as correct. What is publicly known is both accurate and false. So now, with newly disclosed documentation, evidence, and contributions from the people involved in this tragic story, the case of the murder of John Benerancy can be portrayed as never before, and you, the listener, can make your own decisions related to it. This is the story of John Benet Ramsey, her unsolved murder. Let's begin. In 1996, the annual Boulder Parade of Lights fell on December 6. It was a chilly night filled with colored lights and sparkles and with streaming exhaust from the floats and fire trucks and the visible breaths of those out in the cold. Four pretty girls, three younger ones and a teenager, were riding on the top of the back seat of a red convertible. They wore crowns, warm holiday coats, 
wooden gloves, and their best smiles. They were representing AmeriKids, a nonprofit youth development group in Denver. All of the girls, including six-year-old JonBenet Ramsey, were excited, shivering a little from the cold. JonBenet's grandparents, Patsy's mom and dad, walked next to the car and carefully watched JonBenet, just as adults from other families watch out for their children while the floats, cars, and bands slowly started and stopped and started again in the typical dance of a local parade. Christmas was still the Ramsey's favorite season. They loved the festivities. Being in the annual Boulder Parade was a tradition in their family. Jambinet's brother Burke, who was nine, and his scout troop had also walked or ridden on floats in prior parades, handing out candy to the crowd along each route as they were doing this year. Christmas was the best of times for the Ramsey family. But in 1996 would be the last year the statement would hold true for them. Patsy had started decorating early that year. With the numbers of trees and decorations in her home, her housekeeper and others had also been involved. After two years, the extensive renovations on the Ramsey's 1927 three-story red brick and stucco house were finally finished, and Patsy was no longer ill from a frightening bout with ovarian cancer that had threatened her life since 1993. The family had much to celebrate. Santa Clauses of all kinds could be found in different corners in the Ramsey home, and there was garland on the spiral staircase that went from the main floor near the kitchen in the back of the home up to the second floor near John Bennett's room. Burke's room was also on the second floor, but at the opposite end of the house. Patsy and John's bedroom stretched the length of the third floor. It was a converted attic space that now held the bedroom as well as closets and bathrooms. Staircases went down each end of the room to the second floor, past the children's rooms, and then onto the main floor. The priorities in the Ramsey's lives have changed since mid-1993 when Patsy was given a no-chance prognosis after she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. She entered an experimental treatment program whose exclusive inclusion allowed only stage 4 ovarian cancer patients. The treatments worked for her, she survived, and was cancer-free. Because of this, the Ramsey family lived less for the future and concentrated more on every day. And to Patsy, who never forgot her cancer, could come back at any time. That included making Christmas as magical as she could. The local Boulder newspaper reported on December 21st. The following. A gathering was held by Access Graphics with about 300 employees, where John Ramsey thanked everyone for the company reaching the $1 billion mark. On December 23rd, the Ramses had a Christmas party for some friends and their children. Santa Claus was there, played by a man Patsy had hired before. The next day, Christmas Eve, John Ben and Burke each went to play with friends while their mom and dad finished up with last-minute shopping for presents. John Bennett told the little girl she was visiting about a secret Santa Claus who had promised he would visit her after Christmas. 
She also told this information to the little girl's mother, and another mother also learned of this. Neither mother gave a lot of thought about John Bennett's genuine delight in the promised secret Santa visit until after John Bennett was killed. And no one, except the person who killed John Bennett, if that person is still alive, or any accomplice he or she might have had, knows whether that promised visit had anything to do with her death. That Christmas week, John Bennett drew a picture for her parents of baby Jesus in the manger with her brother and her standing next to the manger. It was one of her Christmas presents to them. On Christmas Eve night, the Ramses went to church, then out to dinner at a friend's restaurant. After that, they drove up to see the big star they had been stalled on a hill above Boulder for the holidays. Then they returned home. And according to Patsy, she says, uh, we, we set out food for, for Santa. John read the night before Christmas, and Burke, John, and I I would try to remember the next line in the story while he waited to tell us. We were happy. We spent some time shaking packages under the tree, guessing what was inside and admiring how pretty some of the bows and wrapping on the gifts were. The big challenge of the night was getting them both to bed and asleep because, as we all know, Santa Claus can't come and leave his presence unless the children are asleep. And then John remember the following. He says, Patsy and I sat down briefly just to enjoy the evening after the kids were asleep and to marvel at the blessings and happiness of our lives and just what plain fun this was. And then the Ramsey family went to bed for what they knew was going to be an early Christmas morning. According to John, he says, the kids ran into the bedroom at 6.30 in the morning. They were thrilled. I made them stay in our room until I went downstairs and turned on the Christmas tree lights. I brought in Patsy's bicycle from the garage. Burks and John Benet's new bikes were already in front of the tree. Santa Claus had brought a lookalike doll for Jean Benet and a Nintendo video game system for Burke. There were lots of toys and gifts. Patsy talked about the holiday, saying that it was fun, happy, the way it wa we wanted it to be, especially for our children. The rest of the day was full of John Benet and Burke playing with other kids in the neighborhood, showing off their new toys, uh, trying them out whenever they could. Indoors or out, Patsy began packing for the trip to Michigan schedule for the next day. They were planning to meet with John's two children from his first marriage to celebrate Christmas in Michigan, where the Ramses had a vacation home. At one point on that Christmas day, John went to Jefferson County Airport, which was about 10 miles from the Ramsey home. He wanted to check out the private plane scheduled to transport them the next day and stow some baggage in it. Having their own plane and the wealth that fact implied would contribute to turning members of the public and law enforcement against the Ramses in the months ahead. At one point in the late afternoon, Patsy heard her daughter's voice call her from the bedroom. And jumping in saying, Mom, this is what I want to wear. And the little girl was referring to the clothes for an evening get-together with family, friends, and, and other children. And Patsy arrived 
in her daughter's bedroom, and she noted that the new outfit Jumbinet held up uh, had different colors than the traditional red the two had planned to wear that that night. And um, Jumbinet uh, said that she wanted to specifically wear that different um, outfit, and the mother has to to agree and let her do it. John Benet was a beautiful little girl. She was sweet. She had a fun smile. According to her parents, she was a type 8 extrovert who liked to be busy and involved in a number of activities. She had a personality that was on all the time. And um, once uh, after John Benet uh, decided to wear uh, a white sweater. Um, everybody finished dressing up and ready to go. Pa- Patsy helped the children put up their winter co- coats and finally the family left home that Christmas evening for another holiday event. At the party, John Bennett uh, nearly fell asleep on the floor because she was playing a game with her dad um, and her one of her friends and her friend's father. And by the time the Rancis left the party, they dropped a few presents off to other friends that evening. Jean Benet had fallen asleep again from the many thrills of the day. Back at home around 9 p.m., John Ramsey carried Jean Benet upstairs and placed her on the bed where Patsy removed Jean Benet's shoes, left the white top on her daughter, and replaced the bottom part of Jean Benet's outfit with a pair of long underwear. She then covered her daughter with her bedspread and kissed her on the forehead. John helped Burke with a new toy for a few minutes until they both went to bed as well. And in John Benet's, uh, sorry, in John Ramsey's journal about Christmas Day 1996, he wrote the following. JB begged with me with her sweet little smile to help her ride her new bike around the block again before we went to dinner. I told her we were late and we would do it another time. I helped her ride it around the patio. I would always remember her face saying, Daddy, please help me ride my bike around the block. Just one, one more. Why didn't I do it? So Christmas night, 1996, and into the early morning after it was below freezing in Boulder. And the house and uh, 755 15th Street stood in apparent peace and silence, undisturbed by the ice-laced currents from the heights of the Rockies that had turned a 54-degree day into a frigid night. And about 5.45 in the pre-dawn darkness, there was a horrible piercing scream that tore through the house. And it was Patsy screaming the name John. John! Patsy's urgent cry hit John with an impact that caused him to flinch in alarm. His heart pounded in adrenaline rush as he ran down the stairs from the third floor to Patsy's terror-filled voice. When John reached his wife in the hall, outside the open door to their daughter's bedroom, 
on the second floor of the home, Patsy's face appeared stricken, her eyes wildly unfocused. She was looking at everything and at nothing. There was a ransom note, she told him, sobbing for their daughter, Jean Benet. And she said, she's gone. Fear and dead engulfed John and Patsy Ramsey as each felt a rising sense of panic in their chest and throats. It was suddenly hard to breathe. John stared at his daughter's empty bed. Her bed covers were pulled halfway back, and there was a crease in her bottom sheet. John Benet's dresser was undisturbed, its lamp an array of little girl knickknacks just as they should be. The second twin bed in the room was still neatly made with a doll sitting in its head. A smaller Santa Claus bear lay on a pillow at the feet of the doll, just as it had been the night before, and a few of John Bennett's clothes had been placed on that bed. John was struggling to make sense of what he was looking at, just as before he had carried her his his sleeping daughter to her bedroom and place her safely in her bed. So now the question was, what about nine-year-old Burke? So confusion muddied clarity that awful morning. Both parents raced to their son's room, which was also on the second floor, on the opposite end of the hallway from John Bennett's bedroom. And all they could think was, please God, let him be here. And he was. Burke was in his bed, curled beneath a blue bedspread. Burke would later say in an interview that he pretended to be asleep that morning when his parents checked on him because hearing his parents so upset had scared him. Though John and Patsy tried to take deep breath and think clearly, Patsy was quickly growing more hysterical and began physically shaking her muted sobs coming in gasps. The fright kept building, tightening both their chests, and the next few moments became a panic blur. They ran to the bottom of the back spiral staircase with its green garland decorations, where a note laid on a lower step. The note was handwritten. In the two and a half pages of bizarrely worded threats, there was a demand for ransom. His voice rising, John told Patsy to call the police. It was 5.52 that morning. Every second was fueled by desperation. When Patsy called 911, she said, Hurry, 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 she begged the 911 operator. John spread the ransom note on the floor of the kitchen as he tried to absorb what was in it. But most of the words didn't make sense. But one message got through. We have your daughter. His mind was racing. He wondered how someone had gotten into the house and who could have possibly done this. He also started thinking about how to get the ransom note. Sorry, the, the ransom money. And why haven't he heard anything? How could this have happened right in his own home? John and Patsy looked into each other's faces, silently sharing a horrible fear. In the middle of the night, someone had entered their home, left a ransom note, and taken their daughter.
There were two days to speak. How was it possible? Wouldn't they have heard her cry out? Wouldn't they have heard something? Wouldn't they? John quickly rushed through the house. He was checking for for anything, something, while Patsy finished placing the nine one one call, and proceeded to call family and friends to come help them. One of Patsy's best friends received a phone call from Patsy, who was screaming into the phone, "Get over here as fast as you can! Something terrible has happened." From John's journal, this is what he wrote: "We were out of our minds." I looked under JB's bed. If I could keep my wits about me, I could get her back. She's smart and strong. She knows her dad would get her back. A uniformed Boulder police officer arrived in the Mark police car within eight minutes of Patsy placing her nine one one emergency call. John and Patsy Ramsey had a traditional belief in the police. When you needed help. You call them, and they knew what to do. They were comforted by the officer's arrival. John showed Officer Rick French the ransom note, and tried to explain as clearly as he could what was happening. He told the officer the daughter had been kidnapped. She was only six years old. Officer French listened, took notes, and asked John, "Do you think she could have run away?" And John said, "No, she's only six years old. She wouldn't run away." Officer French took a brief look in various areas of the home, but reported finding nothing suspicious. Within two minutes, a family friend had arrived, pulling into the alley driveway and then running to the east side front of the house. Another officer also arrived. Soon Burke was roused from his bed and dressed so he could be hustled away from the growing turmoil inside his house and go to a friend's house to play. Both John and Patsy walked with their son down the path in front of the home, accompanied by one of the police officers to a friend's waiting car. Bundled in his winter jacket, Burke carried an armful of toys he had received for Christmas just a day before. He was crying. His parents hugged him tightly, trying to convey all the reassurance they could muster. John told his son, "John Benet has has been taken, but we're going to get her back." He also told Burke that it would be better if he went to a friend's home for now. That his mom and dad were there for him, and this will all soon be resolved. People continued to arrive: detectives, friends, victim advocates, whom the police had called. Patsy tried to answer everyone's questions, but to those around her, she seemed frozen in slow motion at times, and then broke down and out of control, crying just short moments later. For Patsy, there was one thought: she had to communicate with John Benet by concentrating only on her. And she was determined to hold onto that connection. It was a fragile and desperate attempt, subject to the sharp realities of the intrusions all around her. Patsy Ramsey was willing her daughter to be there to hear her. In her anguish, she was trying to hold the world away.
Patsy couldn't have known this at that time, but in the minds of some of the people moving around her that morning, the roots of suspicion, even of judgment, were already taking hold. John was in another room. He too was answering questions, trying to offer what help he could. Unlike Patsy, he was allowing his mind to contemplate the terrible realities at hand. John was consumed with thoughts of the kidnappers, of the freezing temperatures and darkness of the night that had just passed, of the fear he had for John Benet. What was she thinking? Was she crying for her mom and dad? Were they hurting her? Was she alive? He offered the police anything they wanted. What can I do? What do, what do you need? Ask me anything, anything. Just tell me what you need. According to John's journal, this is what what happened. He said, he would get JB back, or we would get JB back, and I couldn't wait to hold her in my arms. The FBI had been called, we were told, but would take a couple of hours to get here. I wanted to block roads, but police at the, at the airport... Uh, uh, put police at the airport. Are we doing enough? We gave the detectives more leads. We are worried the kidnapper has not called. Where is she, where is the 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 FBI? We're we're told they're reachable by telephone for advice. I'm thinking, who can I call to get all resources on this? I'm getting desperate now. So John tried to focus on the one goal of getting his daughter back. Unspoken, his thoughts tumbled as he wavered between thinking about when they would get Jean-Benet back versus if they would get her back. His more optimistic thoughts led to planning how he and Patsy would take Jean-Benet and Burke away when this was over. Whatever had happened to his daughter, life would never again be normal. His thoughts tumbled over themselves all morning. At one point, very early on December 26, there were at least five police officers and two detectives in the Ramsey home. In fact, at, at different times throughout the morning, there were a total of 18 family members, friends, and law enforcement personnel on the premises, most freely wandering the home, contaminating the crime scene, and whatever evidence might have been there. John continued his search, which was erratic. He looked in a closet, behind a chair, under a bed, picking up a magazine, and even looking in the walk-in refrigerator. In fact, the refrigerator was the first place that he looked. And while telling himself to focus, he was incapable of an organized and logical search. He was trying to find his daughter, but he didn't know what else he should be looking for. He was traumatized. By the time John got to that basement, he simply wandered through some rooms, which were messy from the Christmas season preparations, not seeing or knowing what might be out of place until he got the train room, to the train room, the room where Burke had set up a model train on a table. It was there that John Ramsey saw something that terrified him. An open broken window with a suitcase underneath and a scrape mark on the wall near it. 
the suitcase would later be moved from its horizontal position along the wall to a vertical angle. As and the suitcase shouldn't be there, John thought. The window shouldn't be open. And what is that scrape on the wall? So he immediately returned upstairs and told an officer what he had seen, and he explained that the window had been broken the summer before when he had been locked out of his home. He had gotten into the house by breaking that window, but the suitcase was normally kept under the basement stairs with the other luggage, and the window shouldn't have been open. He knew something was very wrong. A Boulder police report added more information. It says sometimes before uh, 10, 10 hours or 10 a.m., John Ramsey went down into the basement to the train room and he found the train room window open, so he closed it. The second officer on the scene that morning wrote in his report that he examined the outside of the residence, initial inspection of the west basement window grate. The west basement window grate was located above the broken basement window. The Boulder Sergeant also wrote in his report that he observed actions of occupants of house. John grabbed his binoculars and went to one of the highest points in the home on the third floor. He scanned the neighborhood to see if he could spot anything unusual. Perhaps there would be a car, a van, a person, something that struck him as suspicious and might help police. He also checked his mail, hoping it might contain a clue. The mail was delivered through a mail slot near the front door that dropped the mail inside the house. Even that well-intended act would be misconstrued. As John Ramsey would later be criticized in a leak, to the media for taking time during the crisis to sort through his mail. The investigation was already teetering on the edge of disaster, like a snow-packed mountain in which unstable particles of snow are shifting beneath the surface, about to cause the first, that first gigantic surface crack the signal of the beginning of an unimpended avalanche. Commander Sergeant Bud Whitson, the on-call supervisor that morning, didn't arrive at the Ramsey home until more than three hours after Patsy's frantic 911 call. Before his arrival, he had gone through a deliberate process of notifying necessary personnel, contacting and setting up a, a meeting with the FBI, and searching for a recently created kidnapping protocol document that had not yet been distributed to Boulder police officers. Only a few detectives had the document, and they were on vacation over the Christmas holidays. Whitson knew he needed to observe the scene firsthand and talk with the Ramses. When he arrived, they were in different rooms of the house. The sergeant went first to John. To Whitson, John appeared to be a distraught parent who was forcing himself to respond calmly. John was able to answer questions, and Whitson thought he was earnestly trying to contribute. 
Jumbinet's bedroom was the supervisor's next stop. Whitson walked upstairs to the second floor with the two detectives who had been on the scene er since earlier in the morning. Upon arriving outside the door to Jumbinet's room, Whitson looked in the room for any signs of crime such as blood or broken items, something that was not as it should be. He didn't find anything. He also had no idea how many people had already tra uh, uh, traipsed through the, the little girl's bedroom, and he ordered the detectives to block the door with yellow crime scene tape and stress that no one should go in the room except police. He made a point of telling John that no one but investigators should go into his daughter's bedroom. Then Whitson asked one of the two detectives present, Fred Patterson, to obtain handwriting samples from John and Patsy Ramsey. And from a desk located just outside the kitchen in an area near the back staircase, John produced two tablets the family used to write notes to each other. On one tablet that contained samples of John's own handwriting, John also wrote, wrote more at the top for additional comparison. The other tablet up contained samples of Patsy's handwriting. In his initial police report, Detective Patterson said that he gave the pats to Sergeant Whitson for later comparison with the ransom note. Sergeant Whitson maintained custody of the pats. Wilson would take them directly to the Boulder Police Department. The ransom note had already been taken um, to the uh, BPD Police uh, Headquarters. Unknown to other unseen law enforcement personnel, the second of the two detectives, Linda Arndt, kept a sample of John's handwriting and did it, submit it to Whitson, who at that point was the custodian for the handwriting collection. This action was contrary to the way a trained investigator or lab processor would collect a significant forensic sample. Accepted forensic protocol dictates the investigator or processor selects a team of trained personnel to perform scene processing, collects the evidence at the scene, bags and labels it, and then transports it to the lab where scene evidence is being collected. The manner of the collection was less than scientific and could have easily have raised chain of custody questions at a later trial, uh, later trial especially uh, when the other officers didn't know Arne had kept a sample of John Ramsey's handwriting. Sergeant Rationback, the second officer on the scene, reported his findings to Whitson. He said, I was told there was no signs of forced entry. Even though Reichenhardt had examined the west basement window grate, Whitson did not mention that he had been told this information or the fact that John Rancy had reported that he had found a known broken basement window left open with a suitcase underneath it and a scrape along the wall near it. 
when he wrote in his report the following, quote, Detective Patterson advised me that telephone traps and traces had been placed on the Ramsey's telephone and a tape recorder was attached in case the suspect called. I was advised that Officer Barry Wise had already photographed the house and didn't find any signs of an obvious crime scene where there had been a struggle, end quote. This is from Commander Sergeant Robert Whitson, and the date of this report was January 27, 1997. Examining the case years later, in a three-day Boulder Police Department review, Sebo invited and experienced homicide detectives from throughout the state of Colorado would voice concerns that officers on the scene failed to report to Whitson the other signs in the basement, the suitcase out of place, the broken window, and the scrape mark on the wall. Information about the handwriting samples collection and the police photographs of the Ramsey home was contained in Detective Linda Arndt's report dated January 8, 1997. And it says, Officer Wise was photographing the interior and exterior of the residence. Officer Banklove was attempting to obtain latent fingerprints. Areas checked included possible points of entry and exit to the residence, as well as the spiral staircase leading from outside John Bennett's bedroom to the first floor and the door leading into John Bennett's bedroom. There was limited documentation of evidence gathered during those critical um, first critical hours. Forensic officers only documented parts of the scene when the whole house, inside and out, had been important. The two forensic officers should have looked everywhere and documented everything, especially since at that early stage, no one could have known what, what might be useful evidence. After directing the collection of the handwriting samples, Whitson then approached Patsy. She was sitting with two friends in a small sunroom. Whitson's conversation with Patsy was brief, lasting less than a minute. Whitson introduced himself, telling Patsy he had contacted the FBI and everyone was trying to help her and John get their daughter back. Whitson would later state the following. He says, she was extremely upset and mumbling, my baby. Well, the difference in behavior between the husband and wife, was dramatic. Whitson later said, I didn't think it was unusual. Whitson got little information from Patsy, but one of his detectives reiterated that both John and Patsy had been interviewed and the process was ongoing. The interviews had not been recorded because the two detectives had only one tape recorder between them and they have decided to hook that to the telephone in case the kidnapper made his promise ransom call. Whitson left with one of the two detectives for a 10 a.m. meeting he had scheduled with the FBI. He told the remaining patrol officers they should also leave. After leaving the home, Whitson 
wrote in his report. Detective Patterson and I checked the area near the Ramsey's home for any suspicious-looking people or vehicles and did not see anyone unusual. I responded to the police department and met with several detectives and representatives from the FBI. During this, this meeting, Detective Jeff Kithcard came into the room and I handed him the two notepads which I was giving as samples of Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey's handwriting. The promised phone call from the kidnapper was supposed to happen between 8 and 10 a.m., yet all police personnel except one detective had left the Ramsey home before 10 a.m. By then, hell and its resultant misery were open, ready to open the doors for all to use. According to standard police protocol, only law enforcement, that means detectives, lab personnel, should have been in the Ramsey home the morning of December 26, 1996, because the entire home was part of a presumed kidnapping and therefore a crime scene. Yet there had been 18 people in and out of the house that morning, eight police officers, two victim advocates, three ransom family members, five family friends. An accurate and signed police entry slash exit logbook from the crime scene was not kept. Logbooks represent another way of gathering evidence. They are signed by each officer who is also supposed to note their times of entering and exiting the scene. In the Ransom logbook, there are occasionally several times listed for what should have been one sign-in and one sign-out for each of the officers. So, so this is sort of the chronology. 5.52 a.m., Patsy calls 911. 6 a.m., First Officer Rick French arrives at the Ramsey home. 6.01 a.m., friend of the family arrives at the Ramsey home. The records never mention his wife's arrival, but she appears a short while later. 6.02 a.m., second officer, Sergeant Paul Reckenbach, arrives at the home. 6.10 a.m. and 6.20 a.m., more friends arrive after being called by Patsy. Two arrival times are listed for them in police records. 6.10 a.m. and 6.16 a.m. Third officer Carl Wright arrives at the scene. Two arrival times are listed in police records. 6.30 a.m. First victim advocates arrive. 6.30 a.m. and 7 a.m. Second victim advocate arrives. So there's two arrival times noted. 6.40 a.m. and 6.56 a.m., Fourth Officer Barry Wise arrives. Two arrival times noted. S um, 7 a.m. and 7.10 a.m. Fifth Officer Sue Barklow arrives. Two arrival times noted. 7 a.m. John Benet's brother Burke is roused from his bed by his father and a friend and taken to a family friend's home. At 7.13 a.m., the Ramses minister arrives. 
8.10 a.m. and 8.11 a.m. and 8.30 a.m. Two detectives, Fred Patterson and Linda Arndt, arrive. It is two hours and 18 minutes. Two hours and 19 minutes or two hours and 38 minutes after the 911 call. By protocol, the detectives are in charge of the scene. At 9.15 a.m., Commander Sergeant Bob Whitson arrives. 9.45 a.m., Whitson and one of the detectives leave. 10 a.m., all officers except Detective Arndt leave the home. Nine civilians remains. John Benet, at this point, is still missing. So, according to the logbook, the wife of one of the, of the Ramsey friends was never listed in their entry exit log. The friend had been the first civilian to arrive, reportedly at 6.01 a.m. There is no indication in the log that his wife arrived, but she was in the Ramsey home early in that morning. Several witness statements were taken from her about being in the home, and she and others had verified that she was there. And then the chrono, if we look at the chronology in the afternoon, like around 1 8 p.m., Detective Arndt suggests John Ramsey and his friends search the home to see if anything is out of order. 1 06 p.m., approximate time, John finds his daughter's body in an old basement storage room. 1 30 p.m., approximate time, John's children from his first marriage, son John Andrew and daughter Melinda, as well as Melinda's boyfriend, arrive in Boulder after flying to Denver International Airport from Minneapolis. 1.30 to 2 p.m. approximate time, the Ramses leave their home and go to a friend's home to stay. The police had interviewed them and don't ask to continue to interview them. Nor do they take the family to the police department for interviews, forensic physical examinations, and DNA testing. Early evening and, and that night, John's brother Jeff, family friends, and Patsy's sister arrive at the airport in Denver from Atlanta. So... Although John, Patsy, and their friends had been allowed to wander throughout the home during the morning after nearly all the police officers left before 10 a.m., all civilians on site were instructed by the remaining detective to stay in a back section on the main floor. This is where the detective, John and Patsy, their friends, and the two victim advocates waited for the ransom call. The phone rang several times that morning. Some were return calls from acquaintances John had called while trying to arrange the $118,000 ransom money for when the call came from the kidnapper. Others were from friends, unaware of the devastating circumstances inside the home, who were calling to wish the Ramses happy holidays. One call that morning was unlike the others. With this call, there was a split-second pause on the line, and then the caller hung up. In 1996, the family didn't have caller ID, and the call was not long enough to complete a trace of, a, uh, you know, through the telephone company. 
So John said later, "I thought he was the kidnapper. The caller had waited just long enough to hear his voice. Why did the caller hung up? Who was it? Because there was nothing that he could do." So the small group of people waited and prayed while their hearts were slowly torn apart. As Patsy negotiated with God at one point, she was overheard by a police officer saying, "If only it was me, I would trade places with. I would trade places. Oh, please, God, let her be safe. Please let her be safe." Let's talk a little bit about John Rene for a minute. She was born in August six, nineteen ninety. She was named after her father, whose full name is John Benet Ramsey. Her mother used the soft French J when she called her by the name, and her father used the hard J. As a baby, Jean Benet didn't cry much. When she did, her mother knew she either needed a diaper change or it was time for bed. Otherwise, Jean Benet smiled a lot, was delighted to sit and watch what was going on around her. Always searching for a new site. As she got a little older, her mom once said she, that she loved airplanes. Her half sister Melinda remembers how much John Bennett liked to play outside and be with other children. Patsy kept her children busy. When asked what she did for a living, Patsy said she invested in futures. Most assumed that meant she worked in the stock market, but. Patsy was talking about her children. She was a mother. John Benet and Burke you uh, took piano lessons. At different times, John Benet took violin lessons and acting lessons, participated in the children's choir, and attended gymnastics, singing, and dancing classes. Both children skied, ice skated, and were involved in rock climbing and Bible study classes. Patsy and John wanted them to be well-rounded and to participate in family activities that included sports as well as educational and artistic endeavors. Burke had his father's genes. He was quiet and because he was, you know, easily involved in activities by himself. Jean Benet had Patsy's personality times 10. She was gregarious and outgoing and she liked people. Jean Benet had a certain vitality and was always active and busy. During a, a parental interview for kindergarten, Patsy wrote in some, in, in some of the paperwork that activities that Jean Benet liked to do were, were artwork, coloring, ceramics, reading, monkey bars, rollerblading, and bicycling. In one Boulder Police Department report related to another caregiver for Burke and Jean Benet, a longtime babysitter said Jean Benet and Burke were the most loving brother and sister I have ever seen. Another report, however, related to a former nanny stated that the nanny had, had badmouthed the Ramses a lot. It was reported by police that the same nanny 
who babysat while Patsy was ill, had hit Burke. Burke said that she had hit him, and he did not like her. She had been mean. That babysitter re resigned or was let go as the children's nanny soon after the incident involving Burke. When they were not in school, Jean Benet and her brother were often outside playing with friends. Jean Benet was an old day person, which meant she wake up cheerful, ready for the day ahead. And during the school year, she would get up, get dressed, go to school. She and her brother carpooled to a local public school. She had a few after-school activities, and then she was home for dinner, family time, and and bed. In a previously unreleased police report, Detective Linda Arndt, the only law enforcement person in the Ramsey home after 10 a.m. on Thursday, December 26, 1996, wrote about what she did that morning. According to this report, Detective Arndt talked with Patsy about when she found John Benes missing, who had the keys to the home, their vacation plans, and if Patsy had any ideas related to who might have kidnapped her daughter. Patsy told the detective about her housekeeper, the housekeeper family, and how the housekeeper had recently asked to borrow $2,000. Aunt also wrote that Patsy's mother, by phone from Atlanta, had said that she wanted Detective Aunt to know the housekeeper had told her many times that Jean Benet was such a beautiful girl and as if she, Jean Benet grandmother, wasn't afraid someone was going to kidnap her granddaughter. Art also interviewed John about his wife's recent recovery from cancer. They talked about any suspicious people around the house, but according to Detective Art's report, John said that they have not been any as far as he knew. Detective Arn also discussed the wording in the ransom note. With John, um, they ask, they talk about the amount of the ransom, the strange signature on the on one note, uh, on the note that says SBTC, and things to say when the authors of the suspected ransom note call. She also asked him about any employee of his company, Access Graphic who might be responsible for the disappearance of Jean Benet. John did tell me that um, there was one employee he was forced to let go approximately five months ago. This is what Detective Arndt wrote. So as Patsy lay on the couch, she talked with Arndt about the ransom note. And Detective Arndt says, Patsy explained to me that the housekeeper did not use the words hens or attaché case. Patsy did not know why someone would ask for the amount $118,000. Patsy said that the amount had no significance to her. Patsy asked me, uh, the, the 
which meaning the detective who is writing the report. Um, she said, Patsy asked me why the author of the note had not asked for a larger sum of money or at least a, a round sum of money. Patsy said the author of the note referred to John as being a southerner and Patsy uh, told the detective that anyone who knows John Ramsey know he's not from the South. So the author of the note directed the note to John Ramsey. The amount of $118,000 was an odd, uh, an odd amount. The author of the note appeared to be somewhat educated since the words hence and attache case were used. The sentence, don't worry to grow a brain, John, seemed to be a slap in the face to John Ramsey. The closure victory SBTC did not make sense. And the reference to John Ramsey being a southerner indicated to the friends of the person did not really know John Ramsey because John was originally from the Midwest, from Michigan. A family friend who at one point that morning left the home to arrange to have the ransom amount of $118,000 immediately available from John's bank also spoke with Detective Arn. And the friend of John says um, that $118,000 is a relatively insignificant amount compared to John Ramsey's wealth. He told the detective that the persons who demanded the ransom could easily have asked for $10,000 and obtained that amount. Arndt also noted in her, in her report, no one in the house made any obvious comment to me that it was after 10 a.m. and the suspected kidnappers had not collected. By nearly noon, after six frustrated hours with no word, the home was suffocated, uh, suffocating from inaction. Detective Arndt paid her supervisor, Sergeant Larry Mason, at noon and at 12.30. She reported that he did not respond to her pages, and she noted in her report, Patsy Ramsey had been repeatedly asking me for an update. John Ramsey seemed to isolate himself from others. Arn suggested that John and his friend search the home to keep John Ramsey's mind occupied. The two men then went to the basement. In the basement, they both were directly, uh, they went directly to the room with the suitcase and the broken window and then investigated further. Each moving in a different direction. John went past the basement stairs and down the basement hall to the door of a storage room that was located next to the one he had just been in. The door was straight down the hall from the staircase and was accessed through an open boiler uh, room door. The door to the storage room was about five feet into the boiler room and in direct line of sight of the staircase. 
The old door had no handle. It was painted bright white and a black metal plate to cover the space where a handle would otherwise have been located. The door led to a room that had been used to dump and store coal from the main floor when the home was originally be- uh, built in 1927. The Ransom family used the room as a space to store Christmas decorations and presents, as well as window screens and other construction paraphernalia. At the top of the door, a makeshift block of wood was held in place by a screw. A latch that hung straight down from the block of wood kept the door closed when it was secured. John undid the latch and pulled the door open. Inside, the darkness of the bare storage was solid and still. He turned on the light. Milliseconds of reality blazed toward him. The room was all concrete from the walls up to the ceiling and down to the moldy floor. The open door allowed light from the hallway to help eliminate the dimly lit, rarely used space. Just around the corner, Jean Benet was sprawled on the dirty floor, arms above her head, a blanket from her bed casually or tightly, there is different opinion in this one, oh, um, covering part of her body. Her favorite Barbie nightgown was on the floor next to her. There was a brief second of, of, of relief, um, and John's uh, heart was beating fast. He pulled the duct tape off John Bennett's mouth and frantically tried to untie her hands. And then there is the scream. It was a deep, primal scream. A father's anguish welling from the deaths. A torture cry that reached those on the floor above. Foretelling news of a child's death. John kept screaming his body shaking and he later said the following he says i realized she wasn't alive and picked her up and carried her upstairs the coroner would determine the cause of death had been either strangulation or a blow to the head the force of the blow that john benet endured caused a crack eight and a half inches in length that ran along the interior of her skull, including a portion of her skull that was caved in. But none of that damage to her skull was visible on the outside of her head. As she ran from the basement to the main floor, uh, carrying his daughter, with her arms frozen above her head in rigor mortis, John Ransom thought for at least a fleeting moment that maybe it wasn't too late. He laid her on the floor of the main floor hallway and Detective Arndt des- desperately tried to find John Bennett's pulse. 
but this was not a day for such mercies. The detective told him, she's dead. Any chance was gone. And the helplessness John Ramsey felt at that moment was crushing. At that point, the detective moved John Benet's body into the living room next to the Christmas tree. Years later, Patsy would remember the screams from the basement. And she says, it was kind of this hoarse, deep scream. I was in the den with a couple of our friends. They held me back and wouldn't let me go. Eternity passed and John came in. I knew from his face. I can't describe how he looked, but it was in his face and his walk in his eyes. He told me she was dead. I thought I ran into the room where she was. But friends tell me they had to support me to even walk into the living room to see my baby girl. One of those friends would later tell police that she thought it was strange that Patsy did not move when the body was found. Patsy Ramsey didn't, did make it to where John Benet's body lay on the living room floor. John had covered his daughter with a blanket. Patsy lay down and held the body of her little girl. And Patsy says later, my mind snapped. I couldn't cope, understand, or reason. According to Detective Arndt, Patsy was crying and moaning while she was with John Benet. Patsy raised herself onto her knees, lifted her arms straight into the air, and prayed. Patsy said, said um, one particular phrase. She says, um, You raise Jesus, you raise Lazarus from the dead. Raise my baby from the dead. The Christmas tree, the, the, that beautiful decorated living room, stood as mute witnesses over the murdered child who lay with a rope still embedded in her neck on the floor in front of them. The Ramsey's friends joined hands as the family minister who had arrived earlier that day began the last rites. They then recited the Lord's Prayer, what gathered on the floor around John Bennett's body. When Commander Sergeant Bud Whitson returned to the Bowdoin Police Department at 10 a.m. the day, uh, that day for his meeting with the FBI, he turned John and Patsy's handwriting samples over to the department's forgery detective, who was already in possession of the ransom note. The meeting with the FBI, which also included Boulder Police Chief Tom Colby, Sergeant Larry Mason, who was the supervisor of the other detectives that day, um, and then quite suddenly the meeting was interrupted. Whitson remembers that the forgery detective who had been examining the ransom note and the handwriting samples burst into the conference room where the tablet with the tablet with Patsy's handwriting on it. But it was something else on the tablet that brought the meeting to a stunned halt. 
in the middle of the tablet where there should have been empty pages, the detective have found the words Dear M and J in the same odd um, block uh, letter handwriting of the ransom note. Patsy's tablet, which contained samples of her handwriting, had also been used by someone for practice, writing the beginning the beginning words of the ransom. Seven pages had been ripped from the middle of Patsy's tablet as well. The ransom note had been written on the eighth, ninth, and tenth pages of the tablet. What was left of those pages in the tablet had tears that match up with tears at his top of the ransom note pages. So Whitson said the following. He says, the meeting came to a conclusive halt. It was the first indication law enforcement people in the room had that the Ramses might have been involved in their own daughter's disappearance. And Whitson continues to say, the anomalies of the day continue to mount. I tried to call the the Ramsey home line to tell the detective about the new uh, ransom note development, and it was busy. So Whitson said, the phone line was busy because at that exact moment, the only detective in the house was calling 911 to report a body had been found by John Ramsey in the basement of of the house. And in a later police report on the scene, Detective Lyndon Art said that use of and dead body discovery would, wouldn't account for a busy home phone line at the exact same time. So the discrepancy about the busy phone signal in the home, that was never resolved. The death of John Benet Ramsey was quickly conveyed to those meeting with the FBI at Boulder Police Department headquarters. Whitson would later describe the scene that he and other officers rushed back into uh, at the fancy home as surreal. Patsy was standing and holding John Bennett and rocking back and forth with a banshee-like wail. And the detective, um, Linda Art, she was focusing on her so that everyone else was a, a blur surround. And downstairs, the friend who had helped John Ramsey search the basement at the request of Detective Arn was stationed in front of the closed basement door. Arn had asked him to stand guard uh, there, allow no one to enter. Involving a civilian once again in the crime scene was another mistake by the detective. She sa- it says, controlling the movement of persons at the crime scene and limiting the number of persons who enter the crime scene is essential to maintaining scare, uh, scene integrity, safeguarding evidence, uh, minimizing contamination. 
At the suggestion of the Vancey family's minister, Patsy finally set John Bennett's body on the floor. John and a family friend literally carried and half dragged Patsy, who had collapsed, out of the room. Later, Patsy Ramsey would say, nothing, nothing, I could do nothing on my own. And she also recalled that in her mind, she was screaming, no, no, no. When John's son and daughter, John Andrew and Melinda, and Melinda's boyfriend, arrived um, from Atlanta at the Minneapolis airport, where they had planned to meet John, Patsy, Patsy Burke, and John Benet after their fight from Boulder. A flight attendant told him, told them to call the police in Boulder. They suspected something was wrong and quickly found a payphone at the airport. John Andrew called and his dad answered the phone. Melinda would later recall that the color drained completely from John Andrew's face as his father spoke to him. And John Andrew said, John Benet's been kidnapped. And Melinda said, well, I fell to the ground when John, John Andrew told me that. He was still on the phone. I knew it was bad. We scrambled and were able to fly standby to Denver. My boyfriend was with us. We got a cab in Denver. By the time the three arrived in Boulder, Jean Benet's body had been found. And Melinda remembers the following. She says, when we got to the house in Boulder, I remember seeing police setting up yellow tape around the yard. Dad and Patsy were friends. Oh, sorry, were outside with friends. And, and of course, the dad was crying. It says, Patsy look awful. And she says, John Benet is with Beth. And that, that meant her sister. So she says, that's my sister who was killed in a car crash. My mind played tricks on me. I was already in shock. My first reaction was that Jean Benet had not died. It was that Beth was taking care of Jean Benet while she was still kidnapped. So she said, we almost immediately got into cars and we went to a family friend's home. When we got there, Patsy couldn't even sit up. So I went to comfort her. And Melinda told Patsy, we're going to get her back. It's going to be okay. And Patsy and, and, and it's told Melinda that said, no, Melinda, you don't understand. Your dad found her in the basement. She's dead. And Melinda said, I remember thinking this, this will kill them. After my older sister, Beth, was killed in a car wreck, it was just so awful. I didn't think they could take another loss like this. I thought they would be dead in a year from sheer grief. Patsy already seemed dead inside. Her whole body was pale and gray. She just wasn't there. And the dad was sobbing continuously. His way of dealing was to pace and cry. Um, 
Melinda, her brother, and her boyfriend had started the day in the best of holiday spirits, looking forward to being with the rest of the family. While they tried to absorb the, the enormity of what had happened. So now their lives have um, collapsed. And John's brothers, Jeff and other friends and, and Patsy's uh, sisters arrived that night from Atlanta. Jeff would later say that he was unable to acknowledge that John Benet was dead until he saw his brother's face and he was sobbing helplessly. Jeff dwelt on memories of his niece and focused on comforting his brother and his wife. He recalled Jean Benet's boundless enthusiasm and he remembered them playing on in the leaves in his brother's yard in Boulder two years before and, and John Benet calling her uncle, saying, one more time, Uncle Jeff, one more time. And it had been one of those golden Colorado fall days with the nice blue sky, the temperatures were still warm, and, um, so they could play outside. But the air vibrated the skin with the promise of, of cool nights ahead. The temperature in Boulder at 5,400 feet descends with the sun. The September days were growing noticeably shorter. The sun slanting at different angles. It's western light. This, the, the, the time of the day diffused by gold. The, the games they were playing involved John Benes hiding in a pile of leaves. It was up to her uncle Jeff to find her. She would then jump and yell, boo, and he would pretend to, to, be surprised. And then the game would start over again and with John Benet hiding in a new pile. And after the seventh or eighth time, Uncle Jeff said, maybe they should quick and go inside. But John Benet with that endless supplies of energy most kids have when they're having fun, wanted to keep going. And she would say again, let's do it again. Now, Susan Stein, whose family, the Ramses, lived with for four months after the murder, found out what had happened on December 26th when she and her family arrived home from a movie that day. The phone rang and another friend said, did you hear what happened to the Ramses? John Bernet, John Bernet was murdered? And Susan reflect years later and she says, everything was so crazy. At the time, it's something you would never have thought possible. Not someone going into a house and murdering a child. We were all dazed for weeks just operating on automatic pilot. Terror, fear, depravity has slipped quietly into the home of a seemingly content family of four in the town of Boulder, Colorado. And it was all magnified by the bizarre evidence of the case with its many interpretations. Thank you for listening to The Murder Book. Have a great week. Thanks again for tuning into The Murder Book, a true crime podcast. 
You can find all episodes of The Murder Book for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Podchaser, Amazon Music. You can go to my website, themurderbooktruecrimepodcast.com. All resources used in researching this episode, including books and newspaper articles, are on my website. We are on Facebook and on Twitter at the Murder Book One. Send your comments or suggestions at my email, themurderbook5 at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a five-star rating so that others can find this podcast and it helps me get better. Episodes come out every Monday. And there's a Spanish version for this episode. Enjoy your week. Thank you.